So in the, um, <clears throat> well, my voice is trying to do something here. <clears throat> Sorry about that. In the early years of my faith in Jesus, um, I was kind of grumpy about the fact that Christmas is a cultural holiday in America, to be honest, with people celebrating it who don't actually believe the story, who, who don't believe in it, don't hold it dear. And it felt like having something that's just so important co-opted and turned into a mythology around which you know, this massive marketing campaign and consumeristic holiday have just been built and sustained. I was maybe the opposite of the say Merry Christmas or else crowd, right? I just kind of wanted it to belong to Christians. It was kind of my feeling. And I, I still believe that there are significant pitfalls to what you might call cultural Christianity. But I've since mellowed out about Christmas. And I'm at least uh, modestly happy that the story of the incarnation is prominent. That it's told. That people are exposed to it. And that's a beautiful thing. And of course, I'm thankful for all you know, the other benefits of a holiday where generosity and goodwill are em- emphasized. You know? But I do think about the tension every year. The tension within Christmas. And this year I've thought a lot about disbelief itself and the message of the gospel. It seems to me when it comes to questions about God, there's a far more important question than does God exist? We can't prove, we can't disprove God's existence scientifically or empirically anyway. Can we? We can't. Of course, we can certainly point to just the undeniable grandeur and the apparent genius that is displayed in the tiniest details and all the elaborate processes of the universe and of life itself. It's marvelous. It's stunning. Staggering. And as I mentioned before, Albert Einstein and scientists after him, they, they discovered what they call the cosmological constant. More than 20 precise calculations, such as the weight of gravity, that if they were off by even point zero 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 one, that would mean nothing could exist as it does today. So it might seem to us that the idea of all this being a happy accident is itself a truly massive leap of faith. But honestly, I will say this, in 25 years of faith, 18 years of ministry, I've never met anyone whose faith in God was vital and joyful because they had finally been satisfied with scientific proofs or even philosophical arguments. Never have. All that to say, we can't prove two of the most fundamental beliefs of the Christian faith. Not scientifically. The virgin birth and the resurrection. These two creedal beliefs of every just remotely orthodox Christian, they run entirely counter to what science says is normal or even possible. They're not opposed to scientific laws, mind you. They're just not dependent on them. But they are linchpins to what we profess. If you pull those linchpins out, the wheels come off, and you no longer have Christianity. So if does God exist isn't the most important question, what is? Here's what I think is. If God exists, then what is He like? What is He like? Or let's dial it in a bit. Is this God good? Or to really express the vulnerability of such a consideration, we might ask this. How does God think or feel about us? About you? And about me? I recently heard the story of a miner who was converted during the Wesleyan revival in 18th century England. 
which was, you may know this, you historians, it was a notorious time where just drunken wastefulness was decimating working class families and communities. And this man's co-workers were mocking him and asking if he really believed that virgin birth nonsense and that water turned into wine rubbish. To which he replied this, I don't know if Jesus turned water into wine, but I do know that in my house he turned beer into furniture. Think about it. Changed his life. His witness was not to the existence of God nor provable miracles. His witness was to something deeper, more personal, and more sustaining. His witness was to the goodness of God in his own life, which he could not and he would not deny. So friends, Christians are those who witness not primarily to the existence of God on the face of it, but listen to the character of this God. To His goodness, to His kindness, to the wisdom of His ways, and to His love. This is really what the Bible is about, you know, and it, uh, it's the point of the story of the incarnation of God in the man Jesus It's the story of Christmas. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And it's not just that he did this, it's how he did this, and for whom he did it, and through whom he did this. This is the resounding message of Luke 2. A story that's so familiar to so many of us that we can probably recite half of it. Even if you just watch the Charlie Brown Christmas every year. Or at least you know a turn of words here and there. From the moment of Christ's conception... Think about this. From the moment of Christ's conception in the womb of a poor, uneducated girl from the backwater of Israel to the moment she and her simple, honorable husband and her baby boy find themselves surrounded by dirty, adoring shepherds, something remarkable is being proclaimed about what God is like. About how He feels. About the quality of which is so astounding uh, simply because of how different it is than how you and I think and feel most of the time. About who matters and how we might even go about doing things if there are things that we're doing are going to matter. Listen, in the rabbinic literature of the first few centuries, there are five lists of forbidden trades. Guess what? Shepherds are on three of them. Three of them. And here, beginning in verse 8, of all the people in all the places in Israel, an angel of the Lord shows up to the distasteful 'er ne'er-do-wells and invites them to be the first people to see and to worship the Messiah of God, the one all the otherwise important people in the temple know so much about. Verse 10 says they got the good news for all people. They got it first. And way before Jesus had even laid a hand on a leper, and only hours or days after he had been wrapped in swaddling cloths, the people whose lives were seemingly insignificant at best or reprehensible at worst, they heard these words, Unto you, unto you. And then right there amid the isolation, the dust and the droppings of a shepherd's life, heaven opened up. In 4K Ultra HD surround sound, man. (laughs) A multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Do you mean us? They must have thought. 
the Lord of heaven and earth, the genius architect and creator of the cosmos and all of its constants, puts on a dazzling celestial concert for the dirt bags on the hillside. Why? Because this is our God. This is what He's like. This is who He is. And this is the foundation of everything else we really have to say about Him. Do you know that? Of everything He has to say about Himself, and it's all throughout the Scriptures if we are willing to to pay attention to them and to pay attention to our lives, actually, as we begin to follow them. And that's really what I want to remind you of this morning. Maybe it's all I really want to make sure you, you hear. God gets small because of how he feels about you and me. And I say God gets small with a double meaning. Not only did he become small, literally emptying his immensity and his power to take on tiny hands and feet, to become poor and to become present to the needs of the world, but he gets small. He understands small. He sees small. He gets what vulnerability is all about. Social, physical, financial, emotional, all of it. Psalm 113 declares this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, but who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gets everyone who who lives wondering if they matter anymore now that fill-in-the-blank has happened or is still happening in their lives. He gets everyone who wonders if they ever mattered. He gets everyone who ever thought being successful and wealthy and respectable was going to make them happy only to find themselves battling a nagging sense of longing and emptiness or even self-hatred. In fact, Jesus looked that very man in the face and invited that rich young ruler to something better. And sadly, he refused. This God we profess gets everyone who does a fine job being a somebody in front of everyone else, but who goes home and sits with their head in their hands, feeling like a fraudulent nobody. He gets everyone who wishes they weren't here or anywhere. Everyone who wishes they could start over. Everyone who escapes their fear and they're longing into headphones or a hobby or another highball. He gets them. He gets us because he came to us and he became one of us. He even became the child of parents who even had to do things in this life like making an untimely, dangerous journey because of government and taxes. One of the most joyful thoughts to me is that Christianity does not rely on obvious power to exist or to continue. It's quite the opposite. It doesn't need rational defense. It doesn't need political cachet. It can even survive the church's failures. It can, by its very nature, survive my failures. The reason it can and the reason it has is because it's true. And when I say true, I don't mean factual, though it includes that as well. When I say it's true, I mean it's solid. It can hold us. It's sturdy. It holds up. It has no agenda but to remain faithful when all else crumbles away. It's true because it's loving. And it's loving because it's true. So here's the thing. If our God has shown us that His own humility, seemingly inappropriate and even scandalous, 
is at the heart of His expressed love, if that is at the heart of the gospel and is the way of divine joy, then do you know you and I are getting an invitation into that divine joy? His invitation to embrace our own smallness, our own humility, our own dependence and our own trust by faith is an invitation to the joy of the heavenly host singing glory and peace in a hard, hard world. Psalm 96, which we said together today, that exuberant song of gladness in God, it doesn't come from a place of certainty about God. It comes from a place of confidence in Him. Even a trembling confidence, a dependence. It comes from a confidence that we might otherwise put in ourselves. And that's how it tends to go. That's our temptation as 21st century moderns. And that temptation can put us miles away from the obscurity of ancient Near Eastern shepherds can put us miles away from a poor family longing to get back home with their newborn. Unless we forget, I just want to say it one more time as I close. Nothing about us has made us worthy of God's love or the expression of His character on our behalf. Nothing. Our hands, as competent and manicured as they may be, they're still as unholy as the hands of shepherds. Do you know that? We might as well have been living in dirt and droppings too. In some sense, we were. And we are. But the truth is, God has made us worthy of His love. Because He is good. Because He loves us. Because He does, the Lord Himself has given us the clean hands and the pure heart that Psalm 24 declares are necessary to stand in His presence. He gives them to shepherds. He gives them to us. Because that's where He wants us. Do you know that? In His presence. That's where He wants to be in ours. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? I'll leave you with a line from Frederick Beekner's poetic poem, or really a sermon, a poetic poem, a poetic sermon. It's called The Face in the Sky. He said, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of Him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. Man, that's good news. This is our God. That's what we're here to proclaim again today and really every day. And May the Lord give us more and more trust. Lord, Help us to believe. Help us to hold on. Lord, we know you're holding on to us. Your church remains after all of our failures and after all of our just misadventures and, and missing the point. You have sustained us because you're true and you're loving. You're loving and true. And Lord, I pray that would fill our hearts and our minds today as we celebrate this Christmas together. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.